0: This podcast is brought to you by bellicatering.com.au. Guys, the folks at Bella Catering are one of the best catering companies in the whole of Australia and especially in Sydney, but due to the coronavirus restrictions, those lovely folks led by Glenn and Maria are unfortunately struggling. But we can help them and I want to help them with this show. So if you guys can and you like delicious things and you're in Australia and you're in Sydney and you're within about a 20K to 30K radius, which is pretty much the entire um, Sydney Basin, if you want delicious food at a great price and you want it delivered to your house, bellacatering.com.au is where you need to go absolutely delicious stuff family stuff like you know huge huge get-togethers that we're doing virtually and things like that you want leftovers you want that sort of thing bam bellacatering.com.au glenn is absolutely a deeply questionable individual however that should not be held against him he has a lovely wife he has a lovely family and they've got great staff and they are awesome now onto the show This is an excerpt from Watergate, The Corruption and Fall of Richard Nixon by Fred Amory. The prelude to March 21 had been Nixon's preoccupation with the cosmetic statement on Watergate he wanted prepared by Dean, assisted by Richard Moore, Nixon's confidential advisor who'd been sent from La Costa in February on the abortive fundraising mission to Mitchell. The statement would be for a possible release after Sirica's sentence at the end of the week. The president knew that it would be the thinnest of veils given what he'd just been discussing. Haldeman had explained in detail the transfer of the $350,000 and its use as hush money, and Dean had told Nixon of his presence at the gemstone meetings with Mitchell, and he claimed to have complained to Haldeman about Liddy's bugging plans. Well, you don't need to say in your statement the bugging. You could just say that we're going to engage in intelligence operations, Nixon advised. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me for the 38th minute of Alan J. Pakula's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men, his third film in his paranoia trilogy, and the adaption of Woodward and Bernstein's seminal novel, All the President's Men, is someone who was recommended by another one heat minute productions alumni, Mr. Dan Ziffer, a Michael Mann Tragic, an ABC journalist who has most recently been covering the Australian Royal Commission into Banking. But today I've got ABC's senior business correspondent who's currently working for home in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis, who Dan said, Blake, you simply must get this man onto your show because he was a US bureau chief during the 1990s. And so as an Australian looking at a film that's set in Washington from very far away, I'm interested in talking to a man who has experience on the ground as a journalist, as an Australian in the USA, uh, and recollecting on that, it's Mr. Peter Ryan. Peter, thank you so much for being a part of the show.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure, Blake. Um, Look, I'm really delighted to be uh, joining you this afternoon. And and what a a great topic to be talking about, all the President's uh, men, and and also one of my favourite cities in the world, Washington, D.C.
0: Oh, look, I'm I'm so excited for you to hear... uh, I'm so excited to hear... Uh, about your experience uh, in Washington and about your your story, journalistic career, and how this movie goes. But I earlier today, I just have to talk about very very briefly because obviously there's COVID nineteen that's happening all around the world, and you know you're exclusively um, uh, covering a lot of the you know the Australian business impacts and the finance impacts and banks and how that's playing out uh, in response to the political response. But just for just a brief moment, can we talk about? Can you imagine? Just... Back to 1970, between 72 and 74. Imagine Nixon holding a press conference, a la Trump, in 1972. Can you just, can you even imagine a pandemic press conference where the chevrons on the news below are like blatantly calling out presidential propaganda, falsities, and uh, just flat out screaming matches with journalism, uh, with journalists, the remaining journalists in a in a socially isolated journalistic world uh, in the middle of a press conference. Can you even imagine such a thing happening back in seventy two?
1: Well, firstly, it's it's quite surreal what we're going through here at the moment, but I'd like to think that the best of Richard Nixon as a US leader and a global leader would have come out had he been president now or had uh, the uh, coronavirus pandemic hit in uh, 1972 or at the height of his presidency. I think for everything that's been said about Richard Nixon, he did take a world view, he did make big decisions, he made historic decisions, he made many wrong decisions, (laughs) which is uh, what we're talking about here today, but I I keep uh, going back and thinking that as a child of the Cold War, one of the things I used to worry about was um, Armageddon, the US uh, versus the Soviets, and also that's the context of Richard Nixon at the height of the Cold War. And of course, we've been through many crises, including 9-11, for example, and and that's the sort of illustration that I've had more recently. This is how we feel, the helplessness, not knowing whether or not a plane was going to be flying into a a building in Sydney CBD or Melbourne CBD, but the difference with the coronavirus is that it's locked us down uh, into a different type of world that no one ever thought they would end up in. I, I never thought that I would be spending a month out of my life already broadcasting from home. Um, and so we're, we're having to adapt our lifestyles and uh, and people who live in small one bedroom or studio apartments with no uh, windows staring at walls are, are facing <laughs> down several months of um, going slightly stir crazy and w- worrying whether or not it's safe then to actually go out and do their exercise as they're allowed to
0: it's crazy and yeah you're right about Nixon it's really funny um you know I I think you know my personal view is um, what's what gets crazier about Nixon's actions in relation to Watergate and the political manipulations uh, that his sort of crew you know his sort of dastardly crew of like you know dopey espionage folk that he'd had <laughs> he dispatched out is he was in a position of what is really like it's like unparalleled power like he was in such power in such command he was doing hugely diplomatic things you know when the americans landed on the moon nixon gives one of the most beautifully eloquent and seminal speeches from a political leader there's the china deals which as you you know you you were you know sort of inferring you know has um, still has got uh, global political ramifications today. You know, there's some. There are some big, big things that he did that were hugely influential and positive in the world. And then there's this man behind it, which is seemingly at this seat of unparalleled power. Who's so desperate? His worldview so skewed from that seat. It seems so strange. That's a that's a real element that mm. I'm continuing to come back to in this in this project.
1: Mm. And also so desperate and so insecure. And so still scarred from um, facing off against um, John Kennedy when he lost that election in 1960, yes. and uh, telling Americans that he wasn't going to be a rat to be uh, kicked around anymore, but he did make that spectacular comeback. But uh, also that the hatred and suspicion of the Kennedys, in particular uh, Bobby Kennedy, um, which uh, you know, w- which really stayed with Nixon. Um, showed that that he had uh, many insecurities that perhaps uh, you know allowed Watergate to happen. Yes. Uh, you know, but um, Richard Nixon, I think, compared to the current president Donald Trump, I think in the end, by the time everything culminated, Rich, Richard Nixon realised that the checks and balances of the U.S. Constitution finally had him, and he uh, had enough respect for the U.S. Constitution to quit. Uh, before he was kicked out, unlike Donald Trump, <laughs> who until uh, the, until the coronavirus crisis was uh, celebrating and uh, referring to fake news and uh, tearing everything down, and one of the things I keep waiting for is when will the um, the system of checks and balances, which um, are meant to be working in the United States, will come to pass and operate in a way that uh, brings you know truth to light? But I think the situation we're going through at the moment is. Uh, I, would, I wouldn't um, call it a diversion, but I would say it's the biggest global crisis that we have at the moment. And what Donald uh, Trump does in the next days, weeks, or months, um, given the, uh, the mass deaths that we've seen in the United States, something else that you would never have thought to have seen, you know, um, that's really perhaps going to be his legacy.
0: Yeah, it's unconscionable to think of, right? You know, where when I began this project, um, I, I really saw. I really saw this project as a way to directly engage and communicate with politics in a way that other projects that I've pursued and other projects I continue to pursue don't when it comes to cinema, simply because this, all the president's men um, has such an entanglement with the reporting of the time. Like I would imagine that, you know, uh, you yourself have been through these times, but it would, I would imagine that it's someone who's doing seminal reporting on something like, you know, a country's response to COVID-19 and then a, a film producer being in their ear about the book, what they should call the book. And then while you're currently reporting and currently getting a book deal, that that's all happening, you know, like it's, 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 it all, that all was very, you know, uh, a thrilling prospect to examine it in parallel. And what, you know, in my personal opinion, hopefully it was going to be the last year of Donald Trump's presidency. But I couldn't have foreseen how the the levels of callousness that it seems to happen in America. I feel extremely fortunate to be in Australia right now. And for whatever responses that people are critical, whether uh, of Australia's government um, or not, I, I feel very blessed to be in this country um, right now. In this response, you know, and you look at the other the other countries in the world that have done this really well, and the the Koreas and the Malaysias and um, and, you know, Germany's and obviously our, um, our closest neighbour, New Zealand, doing it probably better than any other country in the world. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, an insane, it's an insane time. It was already a strange time. But I think now, I think the level, like the doomsday clock, it's gone up to a level of insanity in the current United States administration that is, is scary.
1: That's right. And I think uh, talking to uh, reporters and correspondents who were in uh, New York and Washington on 9-11, um, which was, uh, you know, that the, the, the biggest emergency since um, Pearl Harbor. Now, um, you know, Pearl, uh, 9-11 is really starting to fade in terms of significance of the power of this virus and also that no one knows where it's going to end. Yes. Who would have ever thought that a, 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 the economic giant of the United States would be locked down and that there would be people, uh, regular people, queuing for food in California? or there would be graves being dug in the streets of New York City. Um, You know, we are living in times that we could never have uh, dreamt up, and if someone had taken this as a screenplay at Hollywood, Even just a few months ago, they perhaps would have been kicked out of the room. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's it's like Contagion, which was you know a a film that was made you know nearly a decade ago uh, from a great filmmaker Steven Soderbergh and his frequent screenplay collaborator Scott Z Burns was just a uh, it was a modern riff on the disaster movie. It was like The Towering Inferno, but with a virus. And none of that, you know, although those guys are so grounded in a reality of what what a, pand- a global pandemic could or possibly would look like um it still seems so completely distant when you watch it now it is like oh my god like the scariest parts of the of this film the most disturbing parts of this film are all coming to a a, a crazy reality uh it's 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 scary so with that context, that we we're going to take a holiday from that right now, and I want to thank you for uh, your work that you're doing. I'm following you along on Twitter, and thank you for all of the guys at the ABC who are doing that integral work. Um, uh, there, I, I, I want to, um, I want to take, I want to take you on a journey to one of your favorite cities, Washington DC, and I want, I'd love before we dive into this minute, which is an absolute seminal one, the 38th, the beginning, uh, of the underground car park scene, the first time we ever meet Deep's Road. I'm honored to have you on for this minute. I want you to talk about Washington DC. Tell me about this movie. Tell me about Washington DC. What What is the town like? Give me Give me a sense for what What it feels like as a town, or what it felt like as a town the last time you were there.
1: Well, uh, certainly, you know Washington DC, the um, the diplomatic capital of the world, um, the White House, of course, the president, uh, the Congress, uh, Smithsonian museums, um, beautiful. Uh, tree-lined streets, but on the other side, a rough, um, tough town. Uh, you wouldn't have to walk too far from where I lived in Washington, D.C. back in uh, 1991, 1992, a couple of blocks, and you'd be in the rough part of the town, and, and you wouldn't necessarily want to be there if you were a suited guy um, walking around, uh, getting off on the uh, the, rock, the wrong uh, subway or metro, metro line. Of fascinating opportunity, and part of my background was that I'd spent a number of years within the ABC trying to get on that first rung of, uh, of the ladder to become a foreign correspondent. And one of the reasons I became a journalist was that I wanted to be a foreign correspondent perhaps because uh, not because I'd watched um, all the President's Men but i watched <laughs> you know great films like The Year of Living Dangerously, and I'd seen these great ABC foreign correspondents. And uh, I, I finally um, got my opportunity when I excelled in an interview uh, for a job that came up just at the end of the, um, the first Gulf War, and I ended up um, being the successful applicant and um, surprised myself and many other people, <laughs> and uh, you could really feel the pressure of uh, doubters around you, not knowing whether or not I had what it takes to be able to do the job, but I got to Washington, D.C., and I grabbed it with both hands, and I realized it was the um, the biggest break I'd uh, ever had in my career apart from getting a foot in the door as a coffee boy at the uh, Daily Mirror in Sydney 40 years ago. But uh, it was a, an exhilarating experience. Um, I was, uh, you know, working there at the time with um, Heather Ewart, became a, a very uh, good friend of mine, but um, we covered a lot of stories. And of course, this was um, 1992, the US presidential campaign um, and the rise of uh, Bill Clinton, the uh, Dodge, uh, draft Dodger the uh, the womanizer um, <laughs> who finally made it through the ranks to become president and I forgot to mention he uh, he uh, smoked he didn't inhale so there was everything thrown at him by the Republican Party and of course uh, George Bush senior was the uh, the hero out of the first uh, Gulf War had the highest um, uh, ratings of, ev- of any president but he learned hard that uh, as Bill Clinton said, um, or his advisor James Carville said, it's all about the economy, it's the economy, stupid. And while George Bush Sr. was a great foreign president, uh, the victor in the Gulf War and um, the window of opportunity after the Gulf War, he'd um, uh, neglected the US economy. And uh, that's that's what uh, Bill Clinton uh, rode in on to become a US president. And. Uh, Strangely, for a guy who um, was elected uh, based on uh, domestic problems in the United States, Clinton himself became a great um, international president as well, but uh, probably remembered for a few other things.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh, God. What a tumultuous time going right into that. I mean, in Australia, a couple of times that I've spoken to guests about what the Australian political cycle is in terms of an election, you know, there's obviously... There is a little bit of momentum, we've kind of gone a little bit of the way of the United States when it comes to the speculation of an election and some spills and things like that, but I'm like, no, it's a couple of weeks, we get the the lion's share of it, there's X amount of money that is capped at being spent and that's what it is. People just find that unconscionable that it's not a two-year run with a thousand debates, I'm like, nope, it's not, it's maybe one or two debates and... This is what it is, and there's a few ads, and here we go, and that's basically it. Wow, that must have just curled your hair being there for that for that kind of election.
1: Oh yeah, and and I think it was it was perhaps one of the most interesting uh, presidential races uh, that, that had been around for a number of years, um, because Bill Clinton was seen as being the rank outsider, but. A lot of people forget that he actually got across the line in the big, big election day in November, thanks to Ross Perot, who was yes. an independent candidate who split the vote. Um, he, he was running as an independent, took votes away from people who might have voted for um, George Bush Senior, and Clinton uh, got across the line. I think with um, uh, you know forty two percent of the, uh, the the popular vote. Um, so that and that was you know quite unusual, but it was. Um, as a journalist working in Washington at the time of the election, at the time of the inauguration, you know there's a great uh, digital archive in at the ABC that's now available on desktop to pretty much everyone. And I have to admit I've been doing a few vanity searches out of the um, out of the archives, but you can see the excitement um, in, in my face, my younger face uh, <laughs> um, at the time of, of being being in Washington DC at the time and uh, having that experience. Uh, thanks you know, to the ABC, uh, giving me those opportunities to attend the uh, Democratic National Convention in New York and the Republican uh, National Convention in Houston and really being able to, um, I suppose, uh, be a representative of Australians and report for Australians and get those little stories that Australians wouldn't necessarily see from uh, the big US networks. So, um, you know, that was... uh, that was a great. Uh, that was a great exhilaration. Managed to stay in Washington for five years, and my daughter was born in the United States, oh, um, and is now a U.S. citizen. So um, we love returning to the United States, but of course it will be a different United States the next time we visit. And we let's hope that uh, they get through it, as we all hope we all will.
0: And is your family safe over there? Your daughter.
1: Oh yeah, my daughter and my, my wife live here with me in, oh, in Australia. Oh, great! Good, good to and, hear. Um, so
0: no, I just yeah. I just wasn't wasn't clear on that. I wanted to make sure there was just a brief moment that I have to interrupt the show and say I hope she's okay because there's nowhere I would want her to be rather yeah. now than than in Australia as no, opposed course, to the US.
1: Of course, uh, I have you know many friends and uh, course. and uh, some some relatives in the United States, and I was talking to uh, a friend who lives in uh, in Brooklyn and uh, said. Uh, just in a Facebook message that you know, there was a um, a temporary morgue uh, that was, had been constructed in the street outside her apartment block. Oh, my God. So that goes back to what I was saying about things you would never expect to see uh, in the United States, and keeping in mind this has gone well beyond you know the shock and the trauma of uh,
0: 9-11. Well, speaking of traumatic moments, let's have America on the precipice of re-electing Richard Nixon in a landslide. Uh close close to his run-up. Let's see Watergate, which is just simmering along. There doesn't appear to be a story whatsoever. Let's go to one of the most seminal scenes in paranoia cinema and the beginning of their introduction to, I guess, the most infamous source to a news story in the Western world. Let's, uh, let's take a listen right now. Peter and I are going to listen along, watch along together. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and we're going to dissect it for you. Some minutes that I do for this project, Peter, I think are genuinely made for it. I think there's like an accident, a happy accident of just perfect summation. And when we begin this minute, we start with Woodward in a stairwell. We see Woodward, played by Robert Redford, stalking his way into this underground car park. It looks, it's shot so stunningly. It looks like a vista, like this concrete vista, this cocoon. You come through at about the 30-second mark, we see the incredible eyes of Hal Holbrook, the only thing that are illuminated, just tracking him. He cannot see Hal Holbrook's deep throat in this sort of in this chasm right now. And he walks over, and the final seconds that folks would be listening to before they come back to us right now as we're talking is, Where are you? And <laughs> I don't think that there's anything better than where is he now? Where is this space? Where is he in the story? Where is he in his life? I think it's just sometimes there's just the poetry that is undeniable in this minute. A great uh not not much to be said, but deeply atmospheric, um beautifully shot and you know for for a reporter like you uh that's it must be a foundational question, right? Where the hell are you in this story? Where are you right now? <laughs> what do you need from me? Um so I thought I thought god this would be a good minute to talk to you about where are
1: you? Where are you? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think every time I look at that particular scene, I I just go back and I think you know how actually clean it is to watch it and listen to it. Um, the footsteps and the echo of the footsteps in that uh, dark car park, and and as you mentioned, then Hal Holbrook's um, eyes in the dark as he lights the cigarette, and you hear the click of the uh, the cigarette lighter. And, uh, of course, where are you? And uh, the story goes on from there. But it, it does make you think about the times and, um, you know, whether or not um, reporters these days um, meet um, potential sources in car parks. I'm sure they probably do. Yes. It might, uh, might be a bit different these days in the, in the online world. Um, but uh, it is a fascinating scene and it really really um you know does get your heart racing a bit for for a scene that is you know very quiet and very passive
0: yeah i i think that that's something deeply underrated i think musicians toy with it as well in songs where they just you know a song can be sort of furious or really percussive and going and then you know a, a personal favorite rock band of mine that is queens of the stone age um josh homie really loves to like kill the music in the middle of the track and just like stop for a second and pause and these huge pregnant pauses that build your anticipation before the the track keeps going and i feel like that's this exercise for for alan pakula and, and gordon willis is cinematographer and I think just building the anticipation of this scene and this guy, I mean, I, I would imagine at the time, if you're watching this in 1976, you kind of, you've you've heard pota- potentially about this source. If you've read the book, you've heard about this source known as Deep Throat, you know, the, the, the infamy of the scene, and you're watching it in a completely different way. And as a newcomer to it, or someone who's watching it in a protracted way, like me watching it for the first time, probably in the early 2000s or, or late 90s, and then, you know, watching it many, 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 many more times since. I just love, exactly as you said, there's a quiet anticipation that builds. And one thing I want to jump onto you, what you just said is, there was this really strange thing and it happened around, I want to say kind of happened in, in the middle of the last decade, around the time um, of, of Skyfall uh, in in modern pop culture cinema. But it, I think it might have happened around the time of you know Citizen Four and Edward Snowden's and Chelsea Manning's and things like that, which is the concept of if you are meeting in an online space, if you are on the grid, so to speak, even Jason Bourne had it a little bit. It's like, if you're on the grid, uh, you can be tracked. You know, you have a digital footprint that is even easier to find than a physical one. So I think that what really resonates for me in this scene as well, like you said, some reporters might still be meeting in car parks. The first thing I thought of is they're trying to find an old car park that doesn't have CCTV (laughs) is probably the first thing that they're looking for if they're going to meet in a car park, but it just still feels like... (laughs) People trying to stay off the grid, that face-to-face interaction, those things that are said that aren't being recorded, um, that you can just pass on from, you know, from the horse's mouth, so to speak, and not be tracked, not have a phone call linked to it, um, still such a powerful concept when you're talking about whistleblowers and, and insiders.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and look, you know, uh, last year we had the um, federal police raids on the ABC and also uh, the Australian, and there's a lot of discussion inside the ABC about how do you conduct online or on investigative journalism in an online world where uh, digital movements and fingerprints can be traced and uh, shortly after those AFP raids I, I had a call from a um, a person uh, representing uh, a potential uh, whistleblower and uh, the first question was are you being recorded and I said well I don't think so then I thought, well maybe I am nice. and, and and I said well look um, I tell you what, if you're so concerned about emailing or sending anything, um, why don't you uh, handwrite or find a typewriter and uh, print something out and send it to me at my home address? So uh, reporters, you know, these days are are actually saying that to potential whistleblowers or people with stories, you know, uh, don't necessarily send it to my place of employment but send it to an independent uh, address. There are probably reporters who are are now these days because of... um, Tougher laws, not even taking uh, photocopies of particular documents, but taking notes from documents, so they're not actually, you know, implicated with uh, being in possession of documents that they're not uh, legally allowed to hold. So, um, you know, perhaps uh, there are more in the car park uh, meetings taking place. But as you say, CCTV and uh, Big Brother or Big Sister watching, and uh, car park attendance, and uh, (laughs) <laughs> you know and whoever it, else it's right? it's the list, go,
0: list goes on car park's no longer a good place but you know many of these no. places it, it's 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 always that thing that you know even it happens more so in crime cinema or detective cinema it's like you know there are a lot of throwbacks people always talk about throwbacks you know detective you know films going back to the 70s and going back to the 80s and even the 90s why why there are great crime thrillers is because so many crime thrillers, you know, immediately use technology and it kind of ruins it or, or, or it cripples the story, so to speak, because you're like, oh, well, I can instantaneously find that out about that person. You know, I'll dial that up on the computer, some magic hacking thing that happens in cinema. And there you go. Bob's your uncle. You know all the answers. Um, I want to I dive back. To, to your actual experience of this film. So asking you to do this, I was way more interested in your, you know, your your political career and 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 the political context um and and your journalistic experiences than I was in your experience of the film. But I have to jump back and just say, can you tell me a little bit about your experience with this movie? Have you watched it frequently? Was it something you saw at the time? Like can you can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Um yeah, look I've watched it a number of times and actually I remember um Watching it when we we're in Washington DC, and uh, you'd be there uh, picking out the uh, the landmarks <laughs> yes. because it was all shot around Washington DC, with the exception of the actual Washington Post newsroom, which um, I understand was a, a, st- a sound stage in uh, Hollywood that was uh, you know built exactly to specifications, even down to the type of waste paper bins that <laughs> they used. But there was a there was a particular type of uh, taxi service or cab service that the ABC had in Washington it was diamond cabs and anyone who's been to Washington DC might still see some of the diamond cabs going around. Um, they used to be very big, um, you know, petrol guzzlers, gas guzzlers, yank <laughs> tanks going around, but they had a distinctive red diamond on the roof of the cab. And there are a couple of diamond cabs in, in, the, in all the president's men. And, uh, and we'd be, and we'd be looking at seeing the, um, the streets that we walked down. We'd be wondering, uh, where, uh, uh, where Ben Bradley's house was at, and you know, <laughs> could we find that house up in uh, Georgetown, and uh, uh, you know, all those usual uh, things about uh, about films that fascinate you, particularly if you are um, in town. It's like with the uh, the film The Exorcist, we had to go and find the uh, the, uh, oh the Georgetown uh, townhouse course. that uh, that that was filmed in. So probably a you know diverting there a bit but uh you know it is one of those films
0: it's another classic from the 70s so you know you, i cannot begrudge your uh you you being a tourist you know in australia even in australia there's something thrilling you know there's a really terrific early 2000s uh, crime show called east west 101 filmed in australia on the sbs network um starring don haney and aaron fire so a really terrific series if you had a chance to watch it and that's shot all in western sydney you know around where i worked you know my first jobs out of high school and stuff like that and you just see these locations and you do, you get excited. You're like, Oh, I'm seeing it in my hometown. Like I know where that is. I've been there. I've walked that street. I've been to that cafe. I've parked at that train station before, you know, you can start to see that there's uh there's nothing wrong with that. How is it watching all the president's men in Washington though? Is it like, is it creepy? Is it cause the city feels like, And especially the way that it's shot is, you know, you see these regular streets, you see them constantly, you know, the hubbub of Washington sort of kicking along and and these guys being dwarfed by just the regular hum of a very active town, um, both working class and political. Um, But it seems like a lot of the spaces in Washington just feel like they're, I don't know, they're built for people to hide things. And a lot, you know, that that's that's kind of the feeling that I get. The impression that I consistently get, and maybe that's just the filming of the thing.
1: Well, one of the things about uh, Washington, uh, Washington, is that it's um, it is, after all, uh, uh, just a very large town and a community, a very parochial. It has a very parochial, you know, outside of the Washington Post, but a parochial, you know, TV news service, radio news service, other a couple of other um, smaller. Uh, Newspapers—they um, are, you know, very concerned about you know those local community issues. And interestingly, when you're watching some of the, um, I guess the, uh, you know, network affiliate uh, news programs, they're not that focused on what's happening in the White House, but they're more focused on on those uh, community issues. Uh, but certainly, you know, with uh, an outfit like the Washington Post, when we were, we'd be, yeah, as journalists, uh, the ABC over there, these possibly the smallest. Fish in a very big pond. We'd often often be wanting to uh, get some of the top journalists uh, from the Washington Post to come on to the uh, the late grade late line program, for example. But it was very very hard to get them because they were in demand as you know commentators. And so perhaps for a lot of those uh, prominent people in Washington DC, better known outside of their their hometown than they would have been known locally. Um, you know, so, so it, it's one of those one of those uh, towns where you could you know, walk in as a newcomer, as I did, and look at any particular story, you could certainly find there was an angle that would be of interest in Australia, Um, you know, not necessarily all about the White House or Congress.
0: No, and and, and it's interesting as well, I, I would imagine that in Canberra, that would be the same way too, right? So as someone who's like lived in Sydney for much of my life, you know, when we're thinking about Canberra, we're thinking about you know, the ACT, you know, it is largely skewed to that. So, yeah, it's really interesting to hear. And, and also the more that you learn about the post um, and even sort of now is kind of lionized in Spielberg's recent film written by Liz Hannah and Josh Singer is like um, the transition from, say, the Washington Post to go from like a purely metropolitan paper to a national paper is part of the Pentagon Papers reporting and then later on their coverage of Watergate. So it's them going from a city a city paper of city issues into this gargantuan political expert because they kind of know the way the city moves, they know right. the way the city breathes, um, they know all that. But, yeah, no, it's really interesting to hear because you kind of, yeah. you don't hear about it, right? You don't, because it's such a, a a really eclectic mix of people. Like you said, working class on the one end and then this all of the players in this massive political machine on the other and then media such as yourself, you know, international media that are based there to kind of, you know, be at the the coalface of um, of, of the world's international sort of power brokers in politics.
1: Yeah, and, and, and the other thing to remember is that, <clears throat> pardon me, Woodward and Bernstein weren't the big-time political reporters. They were no. the community reporters. They were, they were doing the, you know, the local the local Virginia or Maryland stories, and they pretty much stumbled across this one. I think that when um, Woodward and Bernstein were were trying to sell the stories to the the big editors of the Washington Post, you know, Bernstein was, you know, um, pretty much uh, put down as the guy who sort of, you know, found a few um, dodgy cafes out in uh, Maryland or whatever. They were seen as being, you know, very small-time operators. So the thing with uh, all the president's men is it just does strike me as one of those stories, and we've we've all felt it. I've felt it that you have to be hungry in this business to succeed. Uh, Woodward and Bernstein—they were hungry as their um, their editor, you know, played by Jack Warden. You know, when um, the bigger editors tried to take the story off, he said, "They're hungry." Wood, Wood Woodstein, as they call them, <laughs> they're hungry. Do yeah. you remember what that was like? They're hungry. <laughs> they they want to get the big story. They're prepared to. Really, you know, wear out the, the shoe leather to get this. And that's exactly, you know, what what we saw the, the chase for the story, um, knocking on doors, going through phone books, um, not giving up, getting on the plane and flying down to see the district attorney in Miami and not giving up, even though the, uh, the secretary gatekeeper was doing her best to. <laughs> <laughs> to, she is. Keep she is absolutely
0: of doing her best. Yeah. She's. She's. Yeah. She's. an icon in and of herself. It's that. That. What is what struck me in your earlier conversation is like you got a break. You know, maybe. Maybe that was you, Peter, at that time when you got a break to be the guy in Washington. They maybe saw that hunger in there. That's what excites me a lot about this film, and especially at this stage of the film. And what's exciting about just this a journalism movie is that some journalism movies you want to come in and you want to see. Um, experienced practitioners who are really, really good at what they're doing, uncovering a huge story. And I think one of the arcs that is underplayed in this, because of how iconic Woodstein become, is that these guys aren't the best when they start this out. They are not the most experienced, nor are they the you know the the most incisive. These guys are the the grunts that are on the ground, ready for that shoe leather. And you know, we are really seeing them in the early stages of this film, even right up into this point, that they are they are just grinding away. Nothing is coming easy. Nothing is breaking big, you know, and and the way that they're doing it is not perfection, but we actually see them grow into these, you know, very accomplished and very capable um, people as the story sort of marches on.
1: Uh, yeah, and uh, I, I think I, I look back at uh, earlier in the film where um – Bob Woodward is sent down to to cover the court story about these guys who were arrested in the Watergate Hotel, and uh, he's there in the courtroom. He's sitting in there and he's listening and he's pestering away and he's trying to find out from the uh, the lawyer who happens to be there, you know, what's this about? What's your name? What's their affiliation? And and we've all done that in courts where you go to go to go to a court case. Um, you have no idea what's going on. You think there might be something happening. You've got to get to know the um. Uh, the lawyers on both sides, you've got to understand the magistrate. And, of course, as that scene you know, demonstrated in that wood-panelled court, it's very, very hard to hear. Yes. And, uh, and, and, and you know, you'd see um, uh, Bob Woodward having to lean over those uh, those seats to hear, and he picked up on the key word CIA. <laughs> and, 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 That's all know, it takes. Anyone who's covered a court case knows, knows it's hard to hear, but sometimes you hear key words. And then you've got a hell of a job to actually stack it up after that. And, <laughs> and once again, you know, that's uh, persistence and resilience. You need to be tenacious. You can't take no for an answer and you can't give up and because anyone who's been in a courtroom and might have heard uh, whispered words like CIA, they know there's a thread to something. They don't quite know what it is, but they know if they stick with it, they might get a great story.
0: Is this a movie that you've revisited again, Peter, as a journalist and as a journalism movie? Like, is this one of your, is this one of your favorites that you go back to? Is it something that you know I've asked a lot of folk, and you know some some of the film folk I speak to, they say that they kind of go back to this, and it's a salve, it's a balm for the times because it's like back when you know journalism um, and journalists could could affect real change and have a real influence. Is this something you go back to, or are there other films that you think do, are doing a really good job that continue to do it?
1: Well, I do go back to it occasionally. I've, I've been encouraged to go back to it, you know, courtesy of being invited on this uh, <laughs> podcast. I've, I've actually just ordered a, um, a Blu-ray version with the uh, director's commentary, so I'll be having a look at that once it arrives, even though deliveries are pretty slow at the moment. <laughs> they are. But what it, do, it, it does remind you, though, about uh, the state of the media and what's happened to giant news organizations. And I think if I could probably sum it up, there aren't that many... News organisations or outlets that could say you can spend um, you know a couple of weeks, a couple of months, you know, several months on this particular story. At the ABC, Four Corners would be best placed to do that. For example, they have the the time to do that investigative journalism. But in day to day journalism, it's very hard, and that's when it comes down to you know reporters being able to go to their editors and say, "Look, I think I've got." something you've got to give me a bit of time i've got to follow I've, you've got to follow this through i mean for example kate mcclymont at the uh, the sydney morning herald you know has that brief to be able to do that to get onto something and follow through but it's very hard for you know less experienced journalists or junior reporters to uh, get away with doing that particularly if they just don't have the clout but in the end kate mcclymont had to start with something yes. and uh, she's one of our great great uh, examples of um, of investigative journalism,
0: yeah, it's it's um, you know for folks internationally who are listening, Four Corners is basically Australia's premier current affairs show, um, and and does some of the most consistently and enduring powerful investigative journalism in the country. Um, and, and been running what 40 plus years, Peter, am I wrong with that date? 40 plus years. Uh, yeah,
1: 50, 50,
0: 50, actually, now. fifty. God. Yeah. I, I knew, I knew I was 50th. probably low balling on that one, but, uh, yeah, like nearly 50 odd years, it's an institution. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, I, I think that that's even, you know, that's even the same of, you know, watching something like, um, very recently a film that you know, has a lot of kinship with all the president's men, Spotlight, um, uh, you know, the Boston Globe investigative journalist team called Spotlight, you know, they only have a resource, you know, four resources that they put on gigantic stories that are consistently scrutinized from an investigative standpoint. And is it giving the bang for the buck? And is it, is it moving along consistently? You know, it's a, I think that's, that that's really strange, but it's also, you know, quite heartening, um, especially now uh, of The reliance on a very fact-based and punctual media in this current crisis, I think a lot of people have turned back and started to really find the value in outlets that they can trust. Um, And it's actually quite heartening to to to, to talk to you and to see the consistent coverage in some of those big outlets that you know that investigative journalism and journalism just in general seems to be under the you know is being held in such a high import very very recently.
1: Mm. And and if you just look at the uh, the additional pressures that um, COVID you know nineteen is putting on uh, news organisations, particularly the, the commercial media, you know, newspapers, um, uh, TV and radio outlets that really rely on that advertising revenue, and they're just not getting it at the moment. Yes, we've um, looked at uh, News Corporation, is you know they, they've stopped the hard copy publishing of sixty community titles. Um, Anthony Catalano, who bought uh, some of Fairfax's. Um, uh community regional newspapers have, have just announced that they won't be doing published editions of the Canberra Times for example yes. um its own and equivalent of the Washington Post so this is showing the pressure on uh, those advertise on those uh, commercial news organisations that just aren't getting the revenue of course in the background the big problem is Google and Apple not paying for not paying for news but um, if you don't have your little um you know um, uh, builders or cinemas or uh, restaurants or that real estate advertising, the rivers of gold there, it's making it very, very hard. So all we can hope is that we are able to turn the corner and that, and that this is going to be really important to having a, a viable and a vibrant media.
0: Peter, thank you so much for being viable and vibrant and continuing to report so uh, uh, rigorously during this crisis. Thank you for broadcasting from home. Um, but we were talking about doing this recording um, what feels like a lifetime ago, um, but it was probably only six weeks ago <laughs> to say that we're going to do this face-to-face. Yeah. Um, so I wish that I'd had the opportunity to do it face-to-face just th- to thank you. But look, thank you so much for being a part of all the President's Minutes. It's uh, It's been a treat to talk to you. And as someone who had uh, shoe leather on the ground in Washington and got a big break, At this time, it's it's fascinating to hear your insights and a a real treat. So I just want to say a big thank you.
1: No, it's a pleasure. I look forward forward to hearing uh, the uh, remaining minutes of uh, such a such a classic.
0: A huge thank you to my very special guest, Peter Ryan. If you want to follow Peter, it's at Peter underscore F underscore Ryan on Twitter. He's obviously ABC in Australia's Senior Business Correspondent. If you have any story ideas um, or you have any leads, you can email him at peter.ryan at abc.net.au. Thank you Peter, an absolute treat to talk to you. Guys, thank you so much for listening to One Heat Minute Productions. Wow, we are at the very end of Josie and the Podcast. 12 episodes. Started at 6, but it's 12 episodes of a ripping series of the 2001 cult classic, Josie and the Pussycats. How it began, the history of the characters, all the way through to its enduring legacy with host Maria Lewis. This week we kick off a very, very special new show, a video and audio podcast, Miami Nice, which you can hear in this thread. It is season seven on One Heat Minute Productions. You can also catch Increment Vice, which this week has a huge episode with The Last Jedi, Brick and Looper's Ryan Johnson. Ooh boy, it's good. You got to check that bad boy out. And, of course, all the President's Minutes. If you are listening this week, we have another huge week for you. We have, obviously, Peter Ryan, Daniel Lammon, Jen Johans, Jason Bailey, many more incredible guests coming along on this show. If you want to support us, there is a link um, to to support us in the show notes of this show um, to donate just as a one-off cash donation. You can also become a patron um, on Patreon with a couple of bonus features there and more uh, bonus features coming onto there as well. Guys, thank you so much for your support. If you can't at this time, I know COVID-19 is insane. If you can't support us directly like that monetarily, um, just a share, a retweet, a share on the Facebook, letting your friends know, absolutely appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you so much for listening. We'll
1: catch you on another episode from the One Heat Minute Production Stable soon.